COVID issue for all women. Hi, Hannah here and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops, in which I'm talking to forensic psychologist Anna Motts about a somewhat contentious subject, female violence. Because, as we all know, but women are violent too, is a statement often bandied about by people attempting to derail conversations about male violence. But it doesn't mean that women can't be and aren't violent. Inconvenient truth, though it may be. Anna has written an incredible and often incredibly stark book about her work with violent women. And I ask her questions about why women hurt themselves, their partners and their children and whether they do it for different reasons than men do. So, you know, this conversation contains some mentions of cases that may not be for you. I have a couple more things to say before you get there. Number one, as you'll hear, Anna is American, but the work that she is talking about here and in her book is in the UK. And the second thing is that that very book, A Love That Kills, Stories of Forensic Psychology and Female Violence, is available to buy now. Welcome to Standard Issue, Anna Motts. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. What a fascinating, if not slightly horrifying book you have written. Before we start talking about it, I wonder if you could possibly give our listeners a brief rundown of what forensic psychology is. And if it's not too complicated a question, what drew you to it? Sure. Well, forensic psychology is really about people who've come into contact with the law or the courts. That's the forensic bit. It's through the courts. The psychology bit of it means that I work as a psychologist so with people with all kinds of difficulties, whether they're behaviors that are out of control, like aggressive behavior that's a problem, or anxiety. That means people don't go out or feel very nervous, anxious around other people. And I work with longstanding emotional issues, maybe a sense of terrible insecurity, worthlessness, fear about being judged, depression, anxiety. So it's general psychology, but it's working with people who have committed offenses. So they're criminals, but the reasons for their crimes tend to be, or at least through my lens, to do with psychological issues. So underlying difficulties that we can begin to think about. Um, and address really through through psychotherapy. Uh, and what was it that made you think this is the field for me? I didn't expect it. So basically, in my last year of clinical psychology training, I wanted to go and work in a child and family department at a very prestigious clinic. But in fact, they didn't give my course preference and placements. So then I thought, what else would I be interested in? And there was this secure unit with a clinical psychologist who offered me, I was her first uh, supervisee. And I thought that sounds really interesting. And basically once I started working there, I was hooked because this was an opportunity to work with people at that point, many men, but some women, people who would not have gone to their GPs and said, oh, I'm a bit anxious or depressed or very anxious and depressed, but people who were in very oftentimes socioeconomically deprived uh, environments who found themselves in these kind of relentless trajectories of poverty, addiction, uh, histories of trauma, most of the time, some people just with like extreme mental illness but basically had they not committed their offenses they would not have come into contact with psychological help 
So for me, I felt that really fitted something I'd wanted to do with my life and my mind, which was to work with people who didn't necessarily have the advantages of a privileged few, very different from a kind of consulting room where you see the most well-heeled mm-hmm. neurotics neurotic people like myself I'm not interested in <laughs> there's something about working with people who are so different and who also really want in many of the cases I, I worked with many of the people I worked with really wanted to understand what had led them to this particular offense and there's a whole spectrum as well there were people in the outpatient clinic who had shoplifted, for example, one of the lower level offences, right through to people in the secure unit who had killed people, raped, killed, or sometimes in, in the context of a real delusion. So it felt like all of psychology that had ever interested me, plus this so- social dimension, and I loved going into the courtroom and feeling like we could really use psychological evidence to help shape decisions about what happened to people, mm-hmm. what happened to people committed serious crimes. I know that you are also a feminist and female violence is a controversial topic, especially given that. But women are violent too is often used as a deflection when we talk about the very real problem of male violence in society. Were you expecting some pushback when you wrote this? Did you get some pushback? Did it make you slightly nervous? I think I'm still expecting pushback because It is controversial. And one of my great friends and mentors, Dr. Estella Weldon, when she published her book, Mother Madonna Whore, The Idealization and Denigration of Motherhood in 1988, feminist bookstores wouldn't stock her book because they said this is anti-feminist. She's actually one of the most feminist people I know. So I hope that anyone who actually reads the book will understand I'm not just saying women are violent too. I'm saying Women, like men, have aggressive feelings and forces, unlike men, when they they commit acts of violence much less often. And when they do so, it's generally in the private realm. Mm. Huge rates of violence in terms of self-harm, so violence against themselves, violence against intimate partners and children, rather than the general public is much less at risk from female violence. But I think what's important is to see a woman as a whole being Mm. with agency, responsibility, aggression, even sexual aggression. However, if you deconstruct any particular crime, you will find reasons for that crime. And sometimes the trauma histories are to do with serious brutality at the hands of men or in cases where women kill you know, violent partners, history, long histories of intimate partner violence. So it's not as though male violence and female violence are totally separate entities mm. and it's not that female violence just comes out of nowhere. It's often within the context. Is it fair to say that women use violence as a response to violence, whereas male violence can come out of nowhere? Again, that's a $64,000 question. So yes, what's interesting is we know so without being too controversial, when people take testosterone, that does increase Mm. feelings of aggression. And equally, when individuals maybe who are transitioning take estrogen, there is a sense of becoming more vulnerable, more liable to tears. Freud would say that female aggression is often turned inwards, and we can see that. But certainly some female violence is a reaction to male violence and intimate partner violence where women can respond to years of being abused, humiliated, coercively controlled is one example. Another example is where a woman in a terrible situation where she becomes increasingly depressed or perhaps you know, after childbirth, no social support, 
feelings of isolation and worthlessness and despair. And I have worked with a woman who's done this, several women. They actually harm their child almost as a way both of relieving desperation and frustration, but also attracting the attention of services who then say through the child's injury, something is going very wrong in this household Mm. and let's attend to it. When you talk about male violence, while men may have higher levels of testosterone and be more socially conditioned to be aggressive and uh, violent, I wouldn't say male violence comes out of nowhere either. I think there's always, if you look at the reasons, there's always a, a provocation, even if it's only one that's in their mind, like thinking someone's disrespected or shamed them. What I found really interesting was quite often when people get to mitigating a female crime or actually any crime, people will say, you know, they were terribly abused as a child or they were under a lot of pressure. You know, they had financial strain, all of those things. And I think quite often we have an unsympathetic attitude to that. People will say, well, my mother's mentally ill and she never did that. Or I grew up in a house with violence and I never did that. Whereas I found that reading your book, actually, it really did drive home the idea that a lot of us share the same problems and the fact that we don't all react in the same way isn't the point. I think the point is that perhaps, you know, new mothers need more support. You know, that is a universal. We need to do more about children who are living in households where violence is. It's very difficult, obviously, because quite often we don't know those situations. But I actually think you made these people's problems seem way more universal in a sympathetic way rather than a a sort of, like I say, that gut reaction that people quite often have, which is, well, that's not where I took my pain or that's not what I did with my frustration. Coming up against that attitude, I presume you see quite a lot of that, but you probably see it in the system as well as, you know, in the wider general public. Absolutely. Uh, I do see it in the system and I see it, you know, some frontline workers, whether it's officers, prison officers or nurses, or even psychologists will be like, well, you know, I had trauma and I've not chosen that. And there's a very interesting idea about choice because from the people I work with often don't feel that they have that moment of choice. They feel almost compelled to act. And so part of my work, I'm using one particular model, which is called mentalization based therapy, is about not just having the red mist descend and then you act, but actually being able to identify what's going on in your body, name emotions, stuff that we who are lucky have had in early childhood. We've had our carers tell us, well, that's being angry and you're scared and you're sad. Most of the people I, I work with haven't had those helpful experiences, essential experiences. And so Their world is one of action and certainly forensic psychotherapy and mentalization based therapy is about helping people to think about what's going on in their own minds, empathize with other people and then have that breathing space to think I'm not going to respond like this. Now, this is a hugely complex area, of course, because there are all kinds of social forces. So people get into gangs, they young girls and women in care often find that they turn to violent and abusive partners male partners mainly but often there can also be female partners but people who will lead them into sexual exploitation drug addiction substance misuse generally and that's seen as a way out a way of belonging a way of care and then once in that situation it becomes much easier to become homeless to have unwanted pregnancies and become increasingly reliant on alcohol and substance misuse so there is often a sense like there but for the grace of god Mm. go on what, one thing that's really interesting is when I was doing my psychoanalytic psychotherapy training, I was told by a clinic, the 
clinic for you know people who weren't criminals that I was wait I had done way too much forensic work and I needed to know what ordinary people were like so my years of psychotherapy didn't really count I had to do another 6 months with these ordinary people these ordinary people were at least <laughs> as violent as anyone who'd been convicted you know sometimes the violence hadn't been detected because it was in the household sometimes it was violence against the self incredible levels of disturbance and so that's your point really that this is all on a continuum mm. and you and I might just have the odd violent fantasy or in my case I must admit to smashing my uh, steering wheel in frustration having little private moments of road rage mm. or in, in extreme cases the, in the Jewish tradition when somebody dies you rip your clothes and I find I did that and it was extremely helpful. Say, sometimes saying things isn't enough. You want screaming isn't enough. You want to actually do something physical. But those are rare instances. If I'd grown up in a household where that was the norm and I didn't have whatever protective factors have led the frontline workers who aren't criminals but have had abuse and trauma to escape that kind of repeated pattern, you know, I might find myself in, in situations yeah. of uh, criminality. Yeah. I, I think as well, I mean, my wasn't intending to talk about this, but God, my dad was an alcoholic and he had a wicked temper. And mm. when I look at my behaviour in my late teens and early 20s, I, I can absolutely see now what I didn't know at the time, which was that a lot of that was a response to, you know, the way he was. He wasn't mm. violent to us at all. But, you know, it could be very violent to inanimate objects. And where I was lucky was I, you know, I got through it. You know, I had people around me. You know, I, actually, my dad was a big encourager of go to university, do that stuff. He certainly encouraged mm. me. And now with the benefit of another 20 years on top of that, you know, I can look back at that and say, you know, I could understand it. But when you're in that age and, you know, Okay, so this leads to, to another question. You know, class and race and things like that, you know, getting caught up in the system at a young age, and then a cycle starts to perpetuate. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is the age when your brain still is, you know, entirely plastic and, you know, under the age of 24. And it seems to me that if you get trapped in the system early, there's there's no way of escaping it. I mean, that is a brilliant question, comment. <laughs> and so some of the women, because I work with, within the prison system I work with the highest risk most complex women and some of them have literally grown up in prison mm -hmm. so they've committed crimes when they're in their teens sometimes serious crimes or sometimes the behavior once they're in prison which can be though we we're very much working against make you know the traumatic aspects of incarceration just of necessity being locked up can be traumatizing by definition as it were so we see people who have just spent years and years and years, what we call over tariff. So way beyond when their sentence should have ended. And it's just mind boggling. We also know this, the stats around women from black and minority ethnic backgrounds who are much more likely than white women um, to be sentenced, to be arrested, sentenced and receive longer sentences. So there's definitely something about the perception as well of aggression and something very remarkable about the way that people within certain environments can start to behave as as they're expected to. Mm -hmm. So the projections, the way people treat them, see them, you're dangerous, you're aggressive, you're bad. Unlike your father who said to you, 
please go, you know, you're smart, go on, get educated. So I suppose the best bits of, of work within the prison and within the criminal justice system are trying to combat those negative statements, which have become, in some cases, self-fulfilling prophecies. Mm. I also think that for some people who have been inside, who have been inside psychiatric hospitals or the criminal justice system, they can be the most potent voices and inspirations for women who are trapped within criminal justice or psychiatric systems. So people with lived experience, someone can have had an experience of a misspent youth or criminal behavior and then have done the work, have got released and then be able to come back. In fact, part of my work at the moment is trying to develop training around how prison officers and psychological staff and nurses can all respond to self-harm. And that work is being co-produced with with women in the criminal justice system who have themselves self-harmed as trainers. So I think the really important point is this is a continuum. This isn't like there's another class of people who are criminals mm. and we're these wonderful, good people without aggression or deviance. Luckily, we haven't been caught. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so when I was a local news journalist, I had the misfortune of working on two double child murders. The first, which is probably the most famous one in the world, which is the murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. And the second, which is much less well known, which is the murders of Davina and Jasmine Kumari Baker. And that is actually the one I think about more, if I'm honest, because they were killed by their mum. And... While I don't think I'll understand why any of those murders happened, I can look at Ian Huntley with a kind of, you know, world weariness and say, well, yeah, you know, that's what men do. And I think that might be a good way to lead into the issue you raise of what you call the cloak of femininity. I think we have cherished ideas and ideals of womankind in general and motherhood in particular. It's incredibly threatening to think that a mother could be violent, sadistic, abusive, neglectful. That just threatens all of our beliefs, all of our deeply held uh, wishes, really, about the mothers we have, the mothers we may want to be, the mothers we know. I mean, it's terrifying if you think about the potential to harm a vulnerable child in a household where things aren't detectable or aren't detected. We see cases of women hitting their kids in supermarkets and it's very frightening and alarming. And then you just think what happens behind closed doors Mm. and why? So I think it threatens our taboos much more. And because of these ideas of womankind and innocence and Virgin Mary's Lady Madonna, we don't want to think about maternal abuse, let alone maternal killing. And certainly those cases you describe are the women involved will be treated with a particular degree of horror and vilification. And Maxine Carr was treated, I think, in the press as though she had herself killed those Mm. two lovely girls and she hadn't. And for the mother to kill her daughters is, I mean, it is the stuff of horror stories, isn't it? Yeah. And yet, I don't know those circumstances, but in cases of mental illness, severe psychosis and delusion, like the woman I described in the book whom I've called Dolores, there can be a real delusion that killing is to save. And that's why the book is called A Love That Kills, based on that belief that in order to save this child, I need to kill her, which is the most terrifying thing. Losing your mind is pretty terrifying, uh, thought, but to become 
mentally unwell to the point where you think the world is full of danger and then you harm those that you love most is is truly horrific i've actually because i read your book i've actually been thinking a lot about that case Rekha kimari baker got 33 years in prison and she did go in i mean obviously you you don't know about this and this is the frustrating thing is because you don't know she went in with a defense of diminished responsibility and that was rejected and in his summing up the judge said it was all done as a revenge on the husband and and the truth is and I think that's why I think about it a lot I don't get to know because I, I don't mm-hmm. know what her background was or we don't get to know we don't know what her background was but your brain just just really rebels against the idea you're like there must be something else there must be something else this can't be the whole story nobody could behave like that this cannot be the whole story there must be more to it I never think that, like I say about Ian Huntley, I just think, well, you know, and it's a terrible thing to think, or it's a terrible sort of situation for us to be in. There are cases, again, and I've worked with some too, where the court will believe that it's revenge against the partner, the cruelest revenge imaginable. We think about what kind of state of mind a person would have to be in to take revenge like that. That's a... an extremely distressed and distorted state of mind, but it still has a different quality from the killing Mm. to save. And I think you're right. Often psychiatrists and psychologists will be arguing the same same debate that you were describing. Was it a calculated revenge to cause pain or was it out of severe mental illness? Certainly the majority of the women I've worked with who've killed their own children have been suicidal. In fact, not one of them has not wanted to take her own life. Now, a child a week is killed in this country, which is a statistic I don't hear as often as I think I should. What, why is that, do you think? And the most common victim of homicide in you know, child homicides will be a child under the age of one as well. I think this is, again, something about the unwillingness as a society to really contemplate what it means to be a parent, a carer. The responsibility, you know, people say quite glibly, people have to pass tests to to drive, but they don't have to pass any kind of test to be left in charge of the most needy, vulnerable, demanding, helpless creatures, which are babies. So what happens when they're young babies, I think, is that people's own traumatic past can be reawakened or they might be you know, Less sympathetically, they might be drowning out their pain or just addicted to substances which further disinhibit them. But there's something else that happens. And this happens when children aren't just babies who cry and feel uh, inconsolable, whose cries go through people. I've worked with a lot of men as well as women who have shaken babies and not realized the kind of catastrophic brain injuries Mm. or death result from that. Or cases of neglect where a baby's just been kind of left while the often young, uh, not to discriminate against all young parents, but, you know, the young girl or young woman or a man who hasn't expected to be a parent and finds themselves wanting to live their own life just abandons this baby for, for days and then the baby dies, which wasn't intended. But in cases where ch- children are systematically abused and it's often one child uh, who's scapegoated in this way, you can see a kind of real dehumanization process happening a bit like you can see with victims of war crimes so that baby or child is no longer seen as any kind of person with vulnerability subjectivity needs it's seen as this 
thing, this thing that persecutes the parents. And one of the authors I think writes very well about this is called Lloyd de Maus, who talks about the child as a poison container. The scapegoated child is one in whom all the toxic feelings are projected and then they're destroyed and the parents or carers feel relieved. Mm the evils out there. Siri Hustfed, the brilliant essayist and novelist, also describes this kind of process in uh, her essay, The Scapegoat, which talks about a whole family, including children, turning against a 15-year-old girl, seeing her as this sexually voracious evil demon, and then over weeks torturing her and then killing her. And it's that process of dehumanization that is so, I think, anyone who who covers it as a journalist or who tries to work with the families or the perpetrators will feel traumatized. And I think we should feel traumatized. Mm. Is that why we're we're not talking about it more? Because it is so traumatizing, do you think? Absolutely. A child a week being killed at the hands of a parent is a much more frightening thought than the occasional lovely child or a teenager who gets abducted by a stranger stranger danger is much easier to think about we locate the badness outside the idea that the people who are tasked to care for us whom we most trust could be the very people who are harming or killing us or their own children is it's anathema it shakes everything i mean and and these are the kind of roots of racism as well because we want to say oh it's not us Mm. It's not these people in my street who do something. It's those those people over there, those people with different skin color, those people from different countries or with different religions. They have a whole barbaric set of beliefs and behaviors, but we're we're good. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what's commonly known as Munchausen syndrome by proxy, which is something that we actually talk about quite a lot in our TV review section, given its prevalence in the world of fiction, which I think is so much greater than its actual prevalence in real life. That said, I do think when I was especially when I was listening to your chapter about this, I do think it's one of those conditions that potentially has the capacity to become more common because of the Internet. Mm-hmm. A, it was traditionally associated with people who worked in, in the care sector, you know, mm-hmm. because you, it requires you to have a basic level of medical knowledge to start with. And of course, now the Internet provides that. But I also think this is really unhealthy sort of thing that happens with social media, you know, where people go to social media and use it for sort of for sympathy. And and that really supercharges the available audience to somebody who has Munchausen syndrome by proxy, even if, if it's being used in a sort of in a verbal capacity rather than a violent capacity. And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the condition and whether you think that theory is total rubbish. I think the theory is really interesting. <laughs> I do. Yes, yeah, so the condition is one in which more women than men are found to be perpetrators. As you say, it's a, it's a situation in which a, a person, in this case a woman, who has maybe herself oftentimes been used by her own carer, her own mother, to present at hospital seeking attention, care, kind of dramatic pageantry, using this child who she claims is ill or in whom she's fabricated illness, so actually poisoned in some capacity or harmed in another way and either invents or produces these symptoms it's a condition that's really hard to detect again not just because of denial and idealizations but also because it's so hard to distinguish between ordinary very anxious parenting Mm. 
and the perpetrator of harm who is deliberately inducing or fabricating symptoms. It's very frightening, I think, uh, as a condition, frightening for professionals because to accuse an innocent parent in any case of child abuse is always has tremendous ramifications, but also because this child who has no detectable illness when apart from its parent keeps being ill and could actually be fatally harmed. The idea of the internet and its involvement is a fascinating one, not just because it could help people become you know, technically proficient in mm. how to fabricate symptoms or induce them, but also because for the genuinely anxious parent, they could look up on Dr. Internet mm. and discover a range of potential fatal illnesses. So it does, it does enable access to uh, more hospital presentations, both for genuinely anxious parents and for those who are actively harming their child through this elaborate deception. Mm. Yeah, because when I read that chapter, or when you read me that chapter, more correctly, <laughs> it did really ring a bell with me because I know someone who grew up in a very chaotic household and they had a number of operations when they were younger and they are a massive, massive hypochondriac. I think there has to be some connection between there was a moment in life where everything was about them and that moment was when they were ill. So they're trying to replicate that moment again and again and again. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating topic. It really is. And even for, you know, those of us who I believe don't have fabricated or induced illness syndrome, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, you know, when you are in hospital and you're treated as someone very special, mm important or you get the blue light flashing you, know, you get blue lighted to the hospital there's tremendous kind of excitement and so you imagine a person like you say for whom the only time they really had care in childhood was when they were ill and they associate illness with care or for someone for whom there's no sense of being important or valuable like grace whom i describe in that chapter and then you enter a hospital and suddenly everyone's saying, yes, mum, so what happened and what did you do? And oh, well done you. And you present with, it's it's a incredible performance which meets all kinds of very narcissistic needs. Are there too many women in prison in this country? I think that it would be fair to say most of the women in prison are uh, not violent. And there are many women serving short sentences who we believe, I work in an expert group for, uh, for women's criminal justice policy team, and a lot of women in third sector organisations will argue prison reform trust, women in prison, clinks, that there are too many women in prison. And I, although I work in a prison and can see the tremendous good it can do, for some women, particularly those who are wanting to detoxify, to engage in treatment programs, for the women on short sentences there for six weeks, it's not helpful. No. Mm. And they are losing, you know, 9% of children only will stay with their fathers. So a woman going into prison, she may not, she may go to court and not even realize that she's going to be sentenced. It might be for TV license evasion mm. or a fraud of some descriptions, not a violence to others offence, and then she wouldn't even have made childcare arrangements and she's mm. going into prison. The most distressing thing about that would be losing care of her children if there aren't alternative carers, losing her accommodation, losing her job, losing her social status when she gets out of prison. But the other thing that 
is quite incredible to me is the huge levels of mental illness in prison and the fact that women who are the women I used to work with in the I work within the NHS so I work in the prison as an NHS worker but when I worked in secure units and outpatient settings but particularly in hospitals women with florid mental illness and very complex trauma severe personality difficulties are now in prison and the mental health teams the prison governors are the all the workforce are desperately trying to find transfers so that they can be in hospital so there are definitely too many mentally ill women in prison mm. and too many women who aren't violent. So what the government move, the female offender strategy, is wanting to do and what lots of the third sector organisations are desperate for is diversion from custody and uh, certainly not sentencing women for very short sentences to prison where they won't, they'll lose a lot and won't be able to really do any meaningful therapeutic programmes. Mm. I can remember, again, when I was working on the paper, so many cases where a woman would be done for, i tell you what was really common, council tax or benefits when a boyfriend had moved in and the authorities hadn't been informed the boyfriends had been moved in and the women were done for fraud. And I just think, who is benefiting from putting this woman, you know, like you say, for a really short sentence, I just, I, I couldn't, I could never understand that. It just seemed madness to me. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's also, that's a, that's a case of injustice, I would argue, but also something about not thinking through the, the benefits to anyone of short, short sentences. Mm. When you think as well about the long-term social cost of that is is awful and recalls of women to prison when they've breached a probation order are also coming. But what the other thing I've discovered, I'm sure other people have known this for years, is that in the absence of community provision for women who may be homeless, who may have you know needs for mental health care, social support, in the absence of that, we see revolving door populations of women who come back to prison as if by choice because there's nowhere safe for them mm. in the community. And that is tragic. And I know that there have been some very disturbing statistics that up to 40% of women, if not slightly more, leave prison without accommodation. And so what what's going to happen? They're going to go and sleep on the streets. They're going to uh, the the opportunities to become embroiled in crime or to be victims of crime and that the risks of them becoming victims of crime are just tremendous and so people who work in the system will say oh coming up to christmas time we can expect so and so to come back because there's nowhere else and that is a tragedy and that's not about the prison system which i think is most of the time doing its best it's about the community mm. uh, not appropriate and humane alternatives yeah okay my last question is the current obsession with true crime unhealthy that's a really interesting question is it unhealthy i think it probably is unhelpful in some ways in that it relies on simplistic conceptions of evil or it can distort the ways the the mind of a criminal can work so criminals can be seen in very particular ways that fit fiction but don't really fit reality mm. if we can take that fascination and use it to really become interested in psychological mechanisms and i know some of the very excellent consultants to programs like uh 
Killing Eve, for example, and you know, David Wilson, who's a criminologist, trying really hard to be accurate about the kinds of motivations for criminals, then that can help towards some kind of understanding. But if what we're doing is just creating a voyeuristic, salacious audience for people who are doing things that are often just done in a very out of emptiness, boredom, despair, brutality, nothing that's particularly sexy or exciting, and particularly with women. I think the way women are generally portrayed in true crime documentaries, including women whom I've met, they're very harmful to those women and very distorted. So I think that what you're doing there is perpetuating the kind of all the evil is out there in mm. that one word is so aberrant, instead of saying here we all are as human beings and some of us end up doing something really awful. How can we understand that? As opposed to let's look at this monster and really destroy any chance of understanding her. Oh, here, here. When something terrible happens, if we can't learn something from it, what is there? Otherwise, it's just horrible things happening and, and we can never stop them happening or stop them repeating. Well, perhaps we can never stop them happening, but we can at least try and understand why they do happen. And also, we can't lose, um, may sound evangelical, but I genuinely believe this, that there is hope mm. that people can reflect. Most <laughs> 99% of the people I've worked with who have done horrible things are able to own what they have done to some extent maybe not fully and to really try and find a way to live and move you know redeem redemption sounds so christian but there is something about trying to give back to a society where they have done something terribly wrongful and also to to try and you know deal with their incredible levels of guilt yeah some people don't have that and do we want to kill them? Do we want to put the, you know, lock them up and throw away the key? I don't, but I can, I still want to be able to learn from them. And even those of us who want to just lock them up and throw away the key should use the opportunity to hear from the people who work with those women and the women themselves about the factors that led to these mm. crimes. I mean, I completely agree. And to use another Christian word, and again, from someone who is not that way inclined <laughs> at all. I mean, we do seem to be at a time where forgiveness is, there isn't a lot of it about. It's it's quite a scarce commodity, forgiveness. There seems to be a no, I mean, again, I think this is something linked in with a lot of things, you know, a lot of things that have ha happened recently and social media and all of that stuff. That's the question I always ask, well, what do we do with those people then? what are we i mean that that's a road that you go down that, that the death planet is at the end of because otherwise you know what what hope is there people can't be forgiven where, where are we going to put them what are we going to do with them no i agree and i think forgiveness and self-forgiveness are important concepts mm. they're not they're not in my toolkit for working with people but if they can't I'm not there as judge and jury, I'm there as a therapist and also to look at risk of future offence. But for the person themselves who's done something they they find unforgivable, for them to be able to understand that the action or the behaviour or the crime may be something they can't forgive, but it isn't their whole being that deserves, as you say, death. Otherwise they will, you know, they will not be able to wake up the next morning. Mm. And I'm... I believe that they should wake up the next morning. Yeah, so. agreed. Anna, this has been brilliant. Uh, honestly, your book is so interesting. It is a tough read. I will say to people, it is a tough read. You do tackle some really tough topics, obviously, because that's the nature of what you do. 
it's done in a very understanding and I think compassionate and sympathetic, I don't know if sympathetic is the right word, empathetic fashion. And yeah, uh, it's terrific. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Standard Issue for All Women.